Welcome to Parent Talk Podcasts, where experienced parents and expert guests give tips and tricks on making parenting a breeze. Well, at least a little easier. Now here is your host, Genevieve Kyle, and co-host, Heather Fox. Hi everyone, welcome to Parent Talk, broadcasting out of the greater Vancouver area. Parent Talk is a conversation that supports and encourages moms and dads. Our show is a great way to connect and bounce ideas off of other parents, going through similar experiences, helping us be the best parents we can be. If you have a question or you would like to join us on our show as a guest or as an expert, please visit the Contact Us section on our website at parenttalk.ca. I'm Genevieve Kyle. I'm the founder and your host of Parent Talk. I am a 41-year-old new mom of a one-year-old little boy named Alexandre, and I am expecting number two. We, ha- we don't have a name yet. <laughs> and uh, I am a registered dental hygienist. So today we are talking about family sleep challenges. So let's go around the table and introduce ourselves. Hi everyone, my name is Heather Fox and I'm your co-host of Parent Talk. I am 40 years old and a new mom to baby Hudson who is one years old. I am now a stay-home mom, however my background is in early childhood education and I'm a former owner of Jimboree Play and Music. Hi everyone, I'm Lara Rabb. I am feeling like the baby of the room right now. (laughs) I'm a 32-year-old mom and my daughter Hallie is four. My son Theodore is 15 months and uh, I have been on a journey with baby sleep since 2013. Well, thanks Laura for being here. Welcome. Thanks for having me. And Heather, thank you for being here. Lara, there appear to be many uh, different types of baby sleep professional. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, I can. And I feel like I should have introduced what kind of baby sleep professional I am. So I'm the owner of Heavy Eyes Happy Heart Sleep Consulting, and I am an infant sleep educator as well as a certified sleep consultant. I am an independent consultant. My company is owned by me, and I practice sleep on my own terms. (laughs) So we hear a lot about different types of sleep professionals. I think they're gaining a lot of popularity right now. We hear about um, baby sleep trainers. We we hear about certified sleep consultants under different brands, infant sleep educators, postpartum doulas, nighttime nannies, nighttime nurses. And I think that a lot of new moms really have no idea what the differences are. Or sometimes they think that they're beginning to work with someone and they're quite surprised when what they're being asked to do is different than maybe what they thought the approach would be. So I think it's good to have an understanding of the different types of professionals. Often people will contact me looking for sleep consulting services for their babies and they're very young, sometimes newborn infants, and they're having struggles with just getting them down to sleep or seeing them be very wakeful for long periods in the middle of the night. And I think at that time, usually what they're looking for is more of a postpartum doula or a nighttime nanny for support for their family. And what that type of professional will do is come into your home and get to know your family. And sometimes they'll stay for a shift overnight and uh, you can give them any kind of orders that you want. They're there to support your family in any way in particular. So if you want them to be with the baby in a a different room while you sleep in another room, they can do all the nighttime diaper changes, the swaddling, getting baby back to sleep, and they'll just bring 
baby to you to be nursed to mom and just allow the parents a few hours rest when they're not getting any. So sometimes families will contact me and I'm like, no, you don't need me. You need a postpartum doula right now to support your family. Um, And then I think infant sleep educator is a relatively new term. It's developed actually by uh, Babomia, which is a company based in Toronto, and they have registered this name, Infant Sleep Educator, and they also certify birth workers, postpartum doulas, lactation educators, many other birth professionals. And an infant sleep educator, their role is really to support a family wherever they're at. So with whatever kind of struggles they're having, their approach is that everything is natural, normal, Everything is a season in parenting, a phase that there's not really a problem to be solved. It's just maybe changing our behavior, our philosophy, the way that we look at baby sleep. Um, They argue that you can be a great parent any time of the day, 24 hours a day. If you want to be a nighttime parent, great. (laughs) If you want to co-sleep with your baby and support your baby that way, awesome. Breastfeeding at night is welcomed, breastfeeding to sleep is welcomed, and uh, they'll work with your family in a number of different ways. A sleep trainer is usually focusing on changing behavior of an infant, so usually focused on training a baby to sleep, I guess, would be the best way to put it. And often they have a variety of different methods that they might use to make this happen. And uh, some certified sleep consultants will practice as sleep trainers as well. I think there are, the one thing to realize when you look at all these different baby sleep professionals is there's not a regulatory body here. So anyone can call themselves a sleep consultant. They don't even need to do a certification program in order to do so. And many of the people who are practicing here decided just to start their businesses because they had a passion for this particular area or they felt like they knew a lot about infant sleep and just were starting to share that. So being kind of aware of, I guess, the background and education that different people come to the table with is is something I would definitely encourage families to look at and research. You know, (laughs) you're going to get many different approaches from, from different people. For the certification program that I did, it was through the International Maternity and Parenting Institute based out of LA, and they take a holistic approach to sleep. So really looking at sleep as a family issue, um, when we say family sleep challenges, it means when a baby is not sleeping or a toddler is not sleeping well or preschooler, it's really a family issue. It's not just that one person's not sleeping, right? If a baby's not sleeping, usually mom is not sleeping and dad is not sleeping because mom is not, <laughs> not sleeping. And Vicious cycle here. Yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah, exactly. There's usually lots of people up. It's kind of playing whack-a-mole all night, <laughs> trying to get the baby back <laughs> to <Aww>. sleep. <laughs> um, so yeah, those are kind of the different different sleep professionals that are that are out there. Some certifications come from franchises as well, which I think is important to be aware of. You hear certified sleep consultant, I think it carries some kind of weight to it in terms of 
looking for a professional or someone who's going to ensure that they're looking out for red flags and keeping your family safe. There is something to be said for doing some research, I think, and having um, some background knowledge and education that you come at this with. Lots of people out there. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. There is. Yeah. What are the most common sleep challenges, Lara? So the, I'd say the most common challenge. So, so the first thing I want to say to you is that, you know, when I approach sleep with a family, I don't want to solve a problem if it's not a problem to you. So don't let anyone make you feel like what you're doing with your baby or your family is wrong or insignificant or that you're doing your child a disservice in any way. If you're responding to your baby with love, and comfort at any time, you really can't screw this up. I work with families when they're usually at a crossroads with something. They're in a time of transition and something that they're doing is just not working for them anymore. Sometimes it's because, you know, rocking their baby to sleep for an hour and a half or two hours is just not physically or emotionally sustainable for them anymore. I've seen people rocking their 42 pound babies to sleep sometimes. So, you know, that only, you can only do that so long without your back giving out on you. So, um, the different challenges I work with really are families struggling to get their babies to sleep initially at bedtime, just having it take them hours, uh, feeling like they're trying absolutely everything every night. So moving from trying to breastfeed to sleep, to bottle feed to sleep, trying a soother, babies throwing all the soothers out of their crib, you know, nursing, nursing to sleep, rocking to sleep, holding to sleep, pacing the hallways, and it's taking them hours and hours to get their baby to sleep. So that would be one concern families come to me with. Another would be multiple night wakings, you know, one or two, three, even four night wakings might be sustainable for a family, but I've worked with families who are waking up every 30 to 45 minutes all night long, and they're just wondering how they're going to function um, the next day, sometimes wondering how they're going to function when they go back to work on such a little amount of sleep. Um, Sometimes both parents are not sleeping and working at high-intensity jobs and really starting to feel the pressure of their, their sleep deprivation affect their work life. And then I often work with families through transitions of having new siblings in the house, um, managing, you know, a baby that will not nap whatsoever. And, you know, you've got a toddler at home coming in every time you're trying to get the baby down to sleep. Just, yeah, you know, different, every family's got a different story. Lots of transitioning from co-sleeping to a family bed um, to independent crib sleep. A lot of people co-sleeping that didn't decide to do that when they came home from the hospital, you know, they kind of fell into it, but it doesn't naturally mean necessarily mean the most sleep for their family. Sometimes people don't sleep very well with their babies in their bed. I couldn't. No, I really couldn't sleep actually even in the same room. I could not sleep with my baby. I was just like, is he breathing? Is he okay? Like, so actually for a bit, my husband had to sleep in the other room with the baby Good. For the first three months. I can yeah. I was awake all night as a disaster. So, I was. Yeah. I, yeah. I was the same way with my daughter. She was a really loud sleeper. I felt like she was always yeah, grunting. They make so much noises. And my son, I was like, Oh, I can sleep with you in my bed. 
easily. H- yeah, Hudson is a quiet sleeper. And nice. I I remember like okay, the first six months, it's recommended that they're in the same room. So I was like, okay, that's great. But when it was time, he's growing out of the bassinet and I'm like, oh, he's almost ready to move to the big crib. I was... I was having more issues than he probably would have. And then also we moved houses. So then it was like, okay, you're moved out of the bassinet, but we don't even have a crib set up because we're moving and it's packed. So then he was back in bed, bed with me. And then we moved, oh my gosh, it was, it was quite a little thing, but yeah, he did get back into his crib. But I think that nice month and a half that there was in the middle there, it was almost what I needed to be ready to let him be in another room. Yeah. Because right at six months, I wasn't ready for him to be in another room. I was like, he probably is. I wasn't. <laughs> so sometimes what I'm hearing right now is the parents that need yeah. coaching. Oh, yeah. You know, like it's, it's made. <laughs> totally. you, say that. Tell us the truth, it's, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly brought in as a, as a neutral third party many times just to get parents on the same page. You know, um, usually the nursing parent has a preference, a strong preference over what's going to happen nighttime parenting wise. And then the non-nursing parent has an opinion (laughs) and, uh, you know, wants to be involved in in bedtime as well, or, you know, wants to share some of the responsibility, but are not really sure how exactly to go about that or how to ask or get involved. So I can give families strategies there too, for sure. But yes, parents need some coaching. (laughs) We need coaching. So why do you think so many families are choosing to work with sleep professional these days? Well, a little bit, I think it's like the popular thing to do. And I mean, that might sound weird since I make my (laughs) money this way. Um, But I do feel like for moms, especially, I know when I choose people to work with my own kids, I'm always looking for a referral first. You know, mom to mom referrals are how my business uh, survives and thrives. It's, you know, you work with, you hear about someone your friend worked with and you're like, oh, I want to work that with that person too. Or, you know, sometimes people contact me and they're like, I just want to know what's in your brain. <laughs> I just want to pick your brain for an hour. Sometimes, you know, what education do you have or what background or knowledge do you have from working with all these babies that might be beneficial to me? But I, I find that largely we are especially my my age group, my demographic, we're relying on the internet for our village largely. And, you know, we're part of so many different mommy groups online, Facebook groups related to moms or sleep in general. And there's so many different opinions out there, you know, and some people are really strong in their opinions and whether or not you're doing things the right way or if you're doing your baby a disservice by responding to them in the night. And the amount of information out there is really overwhelming for people. So I think a sleep consultant, what they can do for your family is they can be just one source. So one place to go for information. Every time you have an issue, you don't need to Google and get, you know, a hundred different ways to deal with that particular problem. You've got one person One trusted source, one voice of reason, someone who is more rested than you (laughs) who can make a decision um, in that particular moment. I also think it's, I feel like everybody wants the full birth experience now. It's like, I want the doula, I want the midwife, I want the postpartum doula, I want the lactation consultant. And sometimes there's a need for all of those people. It's like, let's just add a sleep consultant on there too. I need the (laughs) full package. I want to have experience with, with every birth professional that I can. 
you know, it's pretty, it's pretty cool. I've met some awesome people in the birth world, especially it's been, it's been meaningful for me. I've loved with my second kid, you know, my son, my daughter, I approach sleep completely differently with my two kids and it's based largely on the village that I had at the time. So, you know, with my daughter, I was really struggling with her sleep when she was six months old. Um, and everything I found online made me believe this was truly a problem that she was up multiple times a night and that, you know, she wasn't going to be on par with her peers or her development was going to be delayed because she was waking up, you know, five or six times a night. So I felt like my only option was to, you know, sleep train her. But with my son at a different village around me, I'd networked with a lot more birth professionals. And so I had doulas everywhere and lactation consultants, like all at my fingertips. And they're all like, just co-sleep with him or just cuddle him in the night, pick him up, offer him a sip of water. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are speaking a foreign language to me. Um, but it was the best thing ever to have uh, a different a different network available to me. So I see the value really in in working with someone, if it's someone good that you trust and, and feel good about. I never had to um, let my son cry, do the cry out method, but let's say. Mm -hmm. But um, my husband after 20 seconds wants to walk in in a way. So I kind of have to be the mediator between the baby and the, the husband. I'm happy I didn't have to do this. It was not needed. For you, Heather, have you had to do that? Um, so basically, as I mentioned earlier about when we moved and then we were co co-bedding, I guess, um, when we first moved. And so I needed to transition him to the crib. And so just based on what different friends had done with different sleep training and things and that sort of thing. So I did kind of the one that there was a bit of a timed thing and it, it worked for him in two nights. So he, he he's a very easygoing child. As so what do you know, mean a time thing? So let it yeah, cry so, for So a... basically we did our nighttime routine. We did our, mm -hmm. you know, our pajamas and our, and our story and our bottle. And then I would nurse him and he would fall asleep um, as he always did. And then I put him down. But then when he, of course, was like, no, I don't want to go down to this crib. I'm not in mommy's bed right now. Um, I basically, like I say, good night and that sort of thing. And I left the room and then I came back in two minutes. And then I cuddled him back down and then I placed him back in the crib and I walked out of the room. But this time I did it for five minutes or whatever. Anyways, the first night I had to do it five times. The second night I did it twice and then he was in his crib. So it, it was like, and I was never a big long period. I didn't mind doing that whole thing and it worked really well. I mean, if it had gone on longer, I think I probably would have been reaching out for help, but it happened in two nights and he was fine. So that was that. But then a little a few months later, he ended up with roseola. So he was quite sick for that whole week and a half time period and ended up back in bed with me because it was the only way that we were going to function. And anytime he's in bed with me, that means hubby's in the guest room. <laughs> so. That's no good. <laughs> <laughs> Although he doesn't mind. He needs to sleep for work, and I totally get that. So at least when we were in the condo, it, if baby was in bed, it meant hubby was on the couch. At least now he had a bed in a bedroom. So <laughs> Yeah, he's moving up in so the world. So he's moving up in the world. <laughs> Um, but it's, yeah, so anyway, so he was back in bed with me and once he was better, I put him back in his crib and he did one good night. But then after that, it's like, he went, wait a minute, 
I was in my crib last night. <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. want to be there. <laughs> and then we had a few nights of just like, oh my gosh. And then it was like, what am I going to do? And he was fully back in bed with me. I'm like, oh my. And then this is when I was like, okay, maybe I do need to get a sleep consultant because this was getting a little kind of crazy. And then we were planning on going away, just my husband and I. And I had arranged a group of friends, including Genevieve, to um, watch Hudson for this long weekend that we were going away for. And of course, when we originally planned it, he was sleeping in his crib and he was good. And now all of a sudden, now I'm like, oh my gosh, I apologize in advance. He doesn't sleep in his crib anymore. You're going to have to have him in your bed potentially with you. Like, I don't know. Like, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I don't know what's going to happen. And anyways, it is what it is. So my first girlfriend who had him the first night, yeah, she didn't get a lot of sleep. She's like texting me. She's like, yeah, he's amazing during the day. They get along so well, the boys, but I think we're out for nights. <laughs> like, no oh, more. crap, I burned one bridge. Oh, no. <laughs> What's the rest of the weekend going to hold? And um, anyways, thank goodness. I think it was a part that with our the first friend, he hadn't spent a lot of time there. Plus, it was the first night we were gone. So hence, it was a rougher night. Second night, he was with Genevieve. He knows Genevieve really well and Alistair really well and Alex really well. So he was in a comfortable environment. Plus, I think he was like, oh, second night, okay, mommy's not here. I've got to figure this out. I, I need some sleep. I'm tired from last night from not sleeping, right? And that weekend between Genevieve and my cousin, you guys had him sleeping in the playpen. And he did his normal two night, um, like waking up for a feed kind of thing. Did the same thing for my cousin. That was normal, but he went back down into the playpen. So anyways, got him home. It's like, no way he's not going near my bed. I was <laughs> not like, anymore, right? Not anymore. And ever since then, so he's been nicely in his own bed, sleeping 12 to 13 so hours. So call me Genevieve Slash. Sleep trainer. <laughs> no, exactly. I was like, it took my village to get my baby. Train the baby. To train my baby to go oh. back. <laughs> and Lara, what do you think about the crying out method, like the Ferber method? Personally, I I don't use it in my consulting. It's not to say that I haven't used it in the past. I think that I really believe that with increased knowledge comes the opportunity to do things differently. So I usually say, okay, no more now. So I'm choosing to go forward and do things better. Like when I work with families, I I really treat them like how I would want my own family to be treated. And I think about their baby as their biggest resource and their biggest investment in life. And, you know, I want to err on the side of caution, I guess, when it comes to working with families and babies. And you know, there are certainly sleep consultants who practice a, you know, controlled crying form of sleep training. So people have different definitions over cry it out, right? So some people would say it's just, you know, closing the door to your child's bedroom, going back in 12 hours later and just leaving them all night and they can cry as much as they want to. That is usually known as an extinction. Um, there are people you can hire to come to your house and do that for three days. <laughs> It costs a lot of money. I will not do it. I'll just be very clear. Um, but I have actually worked with families after they have hired someone um, who's done that. And they've already paid $1,700 or something like that um, towards towards sleep consulting. And it didn't work for that particular family and that baby. So the methods that I use are really designed around that 
baby and that family specifically. So I look at, you know, what types of things are soothing to that infant and also what are they trying to communicate to us through their cry. I believe in the value of our children's cries and I think that they are needs to be met and and usually there is something to be said for responding to them. Um, and I think we know a lot about brain development and attachment and how infants attach. And unfortunately, a lot of the behavioral methods that we're using to change the behavior of baby's sleep were developed in the 70s and 80s. And I think that a lot of the strategies people are using kind of need to catch up now, you know, with the amount that we know about infants and their brains and attachment theory. Um, and so I, I just, I encourage families to be with their babies and I, I understand, you know, it's really hard to be in the room with your child when they're crying, you know, if there's nothing that you can do to stop it. So sometimes families will say to me like, well, what's the difference? Like he's crying in my arms or I just put him in the crib and he's crying or he's crying in my in the crib and I'm sitting right next to him, or I just like leave the room and let him cry. You know, what's the difference? I don't really know. I just err on the side of caution, I guess. And I believe in crying as a form of communication between an infant and their parent, their caregiver. And I think that there are going to be conversations that we have with our children that are very difficult to have. And that begins in infancy. And, you know, through the toddler years, they're going to say different things that are really hard for us to hear. In the preschool years, you know, with my daughter, she's looked me straight in the face and said, I'm not going to be your daughter anymore. <laughs> I'm not going to love you tomorrow, Ouch. you know, and those things, they, they hurt. But I also think, you know, there's something, if I want to be the person who she's talking to forever, and I want to be the person who she's communicating with when things are difficult. I want to say, I'm here for you through difficult conversations. I'm not going to walk out on you, I guess, because this is hard for me. I'm going to try to find a way to support you through this. Now, I I see when families can't do this, it's usually, that's where I can help them. You know, I can give them tools to be in the room with their baby and support them through that crying. You know, like, how can we help? Or how can I, you know, support you at that time? Um, so speaking of that, like being in the room, that sort of thing, my girlfriend who had a sleep consultant, that was the, kind of the method, like you, like she was in the room and that sort of thing with her son while they were doing um, the training or whatever. But I find for Hudson, if I put him in his crib and I am there in the room and I sit next to him, over, he is like reaching through the bars at me. He is like melting on the crib like he's just like why are you not touching me mom why like whereas if I do leave the room he will sit or lie down Mm -hmm. so that's why I'm like to me I feel like he sees me ignoring him (laughs) and that seems way worse see if you were working with me though right I wouldn't tell you to ignore him okay so I would be giving you strategies to touch him right and to talk to him and to get down on the floor at his level and be with him. Now, the thing is, is that a lot of people just 
they don't have those strategies. I feel right. like those are largely developed through time and through just me practicing a lot with different families in different ways. I sing and I would shush them and I would kind of reach my hand. Like I wasn't fully just sitting there doing nothing, but I was like... Yeah, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of moms say what you're saying. And I think <laughs> that there's, you know, there's an argument for reading the baby here too, you know, and I do encourage my families to do that. I'm like, let's know your baby and get on their level. I think that there are just ways that we can be with infants. Now, it's different the age of the child too, right? So, you know, with your son, there was a time where you would leave for the, for a few minutes or whatever at a time. And I've done that too with my son when he was laughing at me every time that I was trying to put him to bed, he's just <laughs> laughing. And I'm like, okay, buddy, like I can be here for you and I can support you through this, but this is a two-way street. So right. I need you to get on side with me. So in that particular time, you know, he was older. So I think after going through the leap of programs where they know what's coming next and they know mm -hmm. what is happening, they know you exist, they have object permanence, they know that you, when you leave, you're just in the next room, you're yeah. not on another planet. Um, I have real concerns over when people are, see some experts argue that our children don't truly have fully full object permanence until 18 months. Everything that I've developed, it's it's based around around supporting families through that. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not to say that we don't transition a family out of the room. You can't stay with your kid forever while they're falling asleep. And sometimes a baby's going down perfectly fine without making any noises or any sounds or anything. And I'll be like, okay, great. So how, you know, and what are you doing with your child? Like, I'm still sitting there. I'm like, why are you sitting there with your perfectly happy, content baby who's in their crib going to sleep on their own? Just, oh, I just thought I had to be there until they fell asleep. Like, you know, our kids do need alone time too. <laughs> and they sometimes are asking for it in really unique ways. And, you know, I think that as long as you make the decision to leave the room, like out of reading your child and asking yourself what was best for him and, and for your family in that particular moment and the decision was made out of love, then you didn't screw it up, you know? I think it's when you make that decision from a place of stress and like haste and it is going on and on. And I think, Heather, if your gut said to you, I should be there right now, you seem like the type of mom who would have been just yeah. been there. Yeah. <laughs> like even just from the few small conversations we had before we started. So to me... You know, that's like really good instinctive parenting. That's mm -hmm. listening to what your child needed in that moment and, and supporting them. I just, I err on the side of caution for, for many different, just cause like I'm, you mm -hmm. know, it's not my own child. Like when I'm working with other people's kids and they pay me, it's like, I want to make sure that I'm doing you the best service that I can and that you won't look back on this time with regret because a lot of families, when they come to me, they're so desperate for change. They would literally do anything I asked. And I think that's a huge privilege on my side is like, I could tell someone, you know, you need to stand on a car and tap dance naked for your baby to sleep. <laughs> and they would probably go out and do it. I think and, it's a great idea. <laughs> see any problem. You know, so like, that's where I'm like, oh. You know, I want to make sure that yeah. if we're talking, you know, we're talking things through and every decision you make, you're going to look back 50 years from now and be like, yeah, 
that was a good decision at that particular time. Because I, I do have regrets over how I sleep trained my daughter because it wasn't one or two nights and it wasn't right. 20 or 30 minutes of crying. It was two plus hours of crying in the middle of the night. Yeah. And then I found out the next day that she had a double ear infection. <gasps> so oh. I'm trying to sleep train a sick baby and it's obviously not going well. And I just think if someone had have said to me in that time, trust your gut. There is a detachment that happens when, when you leave. There's an episode. Do you guys remember the show Mad About You? Yes. <laughs> so there's an episode where they try to sleep train their baby using the Ferber method. And you can look it up on YouTube and just watch their, their experiences with their daughter. And they leave and they're outside and the dad's like, why are we doing this again? And the mom's like, because we have to teach her independence and we have to teach her that she has to be able to go to sleep on her own or she's going to need us until she's 10 or, you know, 15 or 25 or whatever. And he's like, okay, just, it really doesn't feel right to me. It feels like every bone in my body is saying that I should not be doing this. And she's like, but we have to, we have to do it. Um, It's just one of those parenting things that we have to do. And he's like, okay, well, I trust you. You probably researched this like till the end of the earth. So I'll go with you on this. And their baby's crying and crying and crying. And when I watched that for the first time, it was kind of a trigger for me because it reminded me of that time when I left my daughter and kind of that detachment that I had to make in order for it to be successful. So I had to ignore my gut instinct to go to her. And I wonder about what that has done, you know, to our attachment. She's kind of a particular kid. And I, I know that the brain is highly adaptable and malleable and every day I can work on strengthening my attachment with my daughter. So I've, I've forgiven myself of, of that, but I see parents, I guess, in that moment making those decisions. And I don't think that those are necessarily decisions made with heart or instinct. That's hard, Mm -hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What are the gentle methods families can use to shape their child sleeps? Yeah, well, that's what I do. So um, there's lots of different different things that people do. I think, you know, when when something's not working for you, that's the time to start looking for something new. And often that's where families are presented with, you know, two different forms of sleep training and are told that, these are your solutions, you know, choose A or choose B and or C, go on holiday and (laughs) ask your friend to train your baby. (laughs) I'm joking, Heather. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a good one. I'm going to keep that one. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I just think that there's a lot of different ways that people can make change. So for example, even in Heather's example, what I was thinking of before you know, you went away, you know, I have a blog post that's just transitioning your child to their own sleep space. And Mm -hmm. it's sort of a starting off point that, you know, most of the families I work with are transitioning from co-sleeping to independent crib sleep or, or bed sleep for their toddlers. And so I just have it as a starting off point, a document really like read through this, start doing some of this stuff before we even get to any, anything else. Um, and that's just, you know, when you are transitioning from co-sleeping to independent sleep, your child does need to know their sleep space. They need to know their room. For example, if they don't know their room, you know, it's completely foreign to them. How can we expect them to sleep there? 
We know that the transition from awake to asleep is actually a vulnerable transition for a child to make. And so they need to feel really comfortable where they're sleeping. And also the crib, I have the families that I'm working with play in their crib, like five minute bursts, five times a day before we start, even for like a week where they're super hands-on with their baby in the crib. So reading to them in there, even bringing in bubbles, making it like a circus or a show because... (laughs) Um, it's fun, you know, like we just, we just want them to see it as a place so that when we do get to a point where they're putting their child down in the crib to sleep, they're not met with the immediate reaction of screaming, pulling up to stand, jumping. I'm so pissed off. I don't want to be in here. This is like baby (laughs) jail type thing. Right. So I, Mm. I just mentally want to prepare everybody. And then parents can start to slowly transition a little bit from being right there and being the person who's entertaining them to folding laundry in the room or, you know, reading a book on the couch that's a few feet away, right? We can start to build on those little successes in the room and have baby feeling more comfortable. Um, When I work with a family, I usually look at what they're doing to parent their child all the way to sleep. Very few families come to me and their babies put themselves to sleep. Usually the parents are doing all of that um, for the baby And that's fine. That's natural and normal. I think it's normal. You know, we arrive at these decisions in parenting from a very normal, healthy, evolutionary place. It's normal for your baby to fall asleep on your breast. It's normal for your baby to fall asleep in arms. If you think about from the baby's perspective on a sensory level, every sense is engaged for them. And when they fall asleep nursing, it's just like, the good old days of the womb, you know, they didn't have to worry about nutrition in the womb or getting fed. Well, here I am on the boob and I don't have to worry about that. You've got the sound of a mother's heartbeat. You've got the sound of the sucking. You've got the taste of the milk and mouth. You've got sensory pressure on all sides and it's a warm, cuddly, snuggly place. And it's obvious that a baby would want to sleep there. Um, So usually when people are working with me, they're or sometimes I'm like another sleep coach, even with my daughter, I think about what I did. It's like, okay, I go from nursing my baby to sleep or I was rocking her to sleep. So using that external you know, pressure and motion to get my baby to sleep. And now I'm just going to stick her in her crib and she's lost all of that sensory stuff. So, you know, she no longer has the touch of my skin, skin to skin, no longer has the motion of rocking can't hear my heartbeat. I'm on a cold, hard surface and I'm on my back, which most babies do not like to begin with, most most prefer mm-hmm. side. Um, and so often when I'm working with families, I teach them how to get their babies onto their side and soothe them um, side lying until they fall asleep and then rolling them to, to their backs for safe sleep. But uh, just there's a lot of steps between nursing a baby to sleep and putting them down in their crib awake. And I think when we try to go too fast from one to the other, that's where you're going to be met with the most upset and the most tears. And also, when I work with a family, I look at all the foundational aspects of sleep. And one of those in particular is timing. And there are times in the day that are more optimal for our babies to sleep. There are times where melatonin is being produced are in their bodies and naturally they're going to have a wave there to go to sleep. And if you miss it, 
then cortisol is being produced and you're in a place of adrenaline and now we're doing crib gymnastics and rolling around all over. And you know, you've got a baby there that's fighting sleep. And I know people are always worried about cortisol levels, level like the stress hormone, right? And working with with baby and and one of the ways that we can prevent that is using timing that is that is most optimal. So Sometimes I'll work with a family and they're like, we've been trying to sleep train our baby for months and it's not working. That's it. We throw in the towel. We're coming to you. Take our money. And, and it's like, well, the timing's to- like totally off here. You know, like you're trying to put your baby to sleep when they just want to be awake partying. And uh, that's why you're getting so much, so many tears and so much persistence and anger and frustration from everybody. And I think before we started talking, Genevieve asked me about, you know, are the parents that you're working with often stressed? Are they often anxious um, Mm -hmm. about their baby's sleep? And the answer is yes. You know, when you cannot get your baby to sleep, you get trapped in this anxiety feedback loop. It's like, I'm anxious. I can't get my baby to sleep. Then baby, I believe our babies feel our feelings. I don't know if you guys believe that. Um, And, you know, we're connected on a cellular level. I grew this baby inside of me for 39 weeks or however long, 42 for some people, uh, weeks. You know, this baby is going to feel my feelings. And if you're super anxious about how you're putting your baby to bed, they're going to pick up on that and you're trapped in in that cycle. So if something really doesn't feel right to you and you're trying to do it, it's usually not going to work out. So when I'm working with a family, I'm like, what do you feel like you could do tonight to get your baby to bed? And we work from that place first and getting a, you know, a baseline, a starting off point, getting timing in our favor, using the foods that are most optimal for sleep and nutrition and, you know, having the family all taken care of too. Like if mom's not seeing someone for her anxiety, like let's, let's work on that. There's no point in delaying that, you know, until the sleep stuff is worked out. Many moms are like, I'm just anxious because of my baby's sleep or my baby won't go to sleep. And I'm like, well, let's work on that anyway, because that might actually translate into your baby sleeping better. You know, if we start to practice some meditation for you, or you start to see someone, um, you know, regular massage appointment, acupuncture, there's lots of holistic methods or even medical, like maybe sometimes you need medication, you know, that's, if it's going to make you less stressed, your baby might just go to sleep. That's another, so we can't ignore those, those aspects of the family life when we're looking for gentle ways, I guess, to put a baby to sleep. No, I agree. I think, um, with some friends of mine, their level of anxiety was definitely higher than other of my friends. That's why I ask you that question because I, I think some, often it just starts from us. Mm-hmm. And sometimes because we sleep deprived, maybe our little warning system is not as good as it used to be or we start uh, not trusting ourselves or our gut mm-hmm. feelings get like... When you sleep deprived, you're on basically like on jet lag and mm-hmm. like decisions don't get... Mm-hmm. made the same way as before and and I think after that everything start you know falling apart right and then yeah, yeah. you end up uh, calling a sleep consultant <laughs> to basically bring you back together yeah yeah and I like I mean I love to be that person for people I feel like that's a really special 
relationship to have too. Like to come, I come into people's families when they are at their most vulnerable, really. It's hard to say, I like, I need help with this. And, you know, a lot of families feel like this is something they should just totally have figured out. And this is something that should come naturally. Or, you know, what if it's not coming instinctually? Like, you know, I was mentioning in Heather's case, I think she was using her instinct there. Like, what? But what if the anxiety is clouding everything and you can't make a decision? I think that is a great opportunity to bring someone else in. There was a study that was done, basically, There's an argument that when moms sleep train, their anxiety levels decrease, and it actually isn't the sleep training itself that decreases those anxiety levels. It's just that mom was talking to someone about this every day. And so I always see the value in that piece when I'm working with a family too, is, you know, I'm checking in with them every day for 21 days, sometimes 28 days, sometimes a year. Some families work with me for a whole year. Mm-hmm. They see the value in just touching base once a week, you know, to to not let this become a point of stress again and not let this be something that they're anxious about. Yeah. That's great. <laughs> I think it's time for a conversation card. It's time for a conversation card. Every week we like to play a game, not only for fun, but to get to know our guests a little more too. Nobody knows what the mystery card might ask. Sometimes silly and sometimes serious. Let's find out what it will be this week. Heather, can you grab one and read it to us, please? All right, ladies. Question today is, what would you like to learn to cook? I'm kind of curious about making sushi. I feel like it's something I should have done by now. Like (laughs) everyone else, I mean, I love to eat sushi. Everybody else seems to like have these sushi making parties and events. I've always just relied on the experts to do this for me. And I think it'd be fun to learn how to make that. For me, it would be, I've cooked lots of different things. I love cooking, but I've never cooked duck before. And when I go out to some nice restaurants, I definitely enjoy that. But for me, I don't even know where to buy it, like, or what I'd be looking for. I'm like, it just seems very out there, even though at the same time, it doesn't seem that out there. But yeah, that's definitely something I would like to try. I think I like to try the, you know, the turducken thing. Ah, You're supposed to put the duck inside the chicken and the chicken inside the turkey. Is it something like that? Yeah. (laughs) And then you have to debone everything, right? So deboning a duck actually is probably the hardest and then go from that. But I don't know if I have the patient now. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) All right. Well, that concludes today's episode. So thank you, Lara. Thank you for your time and for your contribution in other parents' life. And thank you, Heather, for always being here with us. For our listeners, the conversation continues on our website at parenttalk.ca. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Podbean. And you can subscribe to this podcast on our website at parenttalk.ca so you don't miss an episode of Parent Talk. Don't forget to review us. Remember, there's nothing more powerful than feeling supported by a community of parents and sharing your thoughts, ideas, and experiences. Parent Talk is a safe space for everyone. Thank you for listening. And have a great week. The views and or opinions of the host and their guests are not necessarily those of Parent Talk and should not be considered as fact. 
The information offered is believed to be accurate but is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice and should not be used for diagnosing or treating any health issue or prescribing medication. If you have any questions or concerns regarding your physical or mental health or the health of your child, please seek assistance from a qualified healthcare practitioner.